Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 109th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is John Guyton. John is the founder of Cornerstone Wealth Advisors, an independent RA in the Minneapolis area that oversees $240 million in assets under management for about 240 mostly retiree clients. What's unique about John, though, is that he doesn't only run a financial planning firm that serves retirees. He's also contributed to the retirement research himself with several seminal articles in the mid-2000s on creating retirement withdrawal rate guardrails and decision rules, and now has spent the past decade actually implementing those strategies with clients and finding out what really works in practice. In this episode, we talk in depth about John's retirement planning approach with his clients, how he separates out a client's prospective retirement expenses into core and discretionary categories, the way he applies decision rules to adjust that retirement spending in subsequent years, and the way he then creates multiple portfolio buckets, each with its own investment policy statement, to handle each of those retirement spending categories, but notably does not create a cash bucket for short-term expenses because of the consequences that cash drag can have on actually reducing a client's sustainable retirement income in the long run. We also talk about the unique resident program that John created in his firm, similar to a medical resident program, to leverage next-generation talent, why he deliberately chose a model that brings in young advisors with a plan that they will leave after three years, how having a limited-duration financial planning resident program has actually allowed his firm to attract even better talent regardless of geography, and the key traits that John has found that really make a financial planning resident, and in the long run, a financial planner themselves, most successful. And be certain to listen to the end, where John shares the challenges he faced in his own advisory firm at the start, and how even though today he's the owner of an incredibly successful $240 million AUM practice, in his first year in the business, he qualified for the low-income earned income tax credit and had to continue for nearly four more years before he finally reached the point of earning a livable wage from his practice. Because the reality is that the first few years are incredibly difficult for any financial advisor, even those who are incredibly successful in the long run. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with John Guyton. Welcome, John Guyton, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hello, Michael. It's good to be here. I'm excited for our discussion today because you uh, sit at, uh, to me, an, an interesting guess, a, intersection of the advisor world that you are a firm owner that runs an advisory business, a, a planning practitioner that sits across from clients, and someone that's also done some research in this space. You publish a number of very, I think, important, very influential articles in the mid-2000s around safe withdrawal rates, sustainable retirement income, set forth a framework that, frankly, I think we still haven't adopted as much today as we should have around setting guardrails on retirement spending and establishing decision rules and creating spending withdrawal policy statements. And so I, I, I don't just want to talk about some of the research today, you know, I, I'm sure we'll chat about it a little and we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes for people that want to read it. But 
I'm particularly excited to talk about what someone who does that research then literally does with it in their practice across from clients, right? Like how, which pieces have you found works with clients? What does it look like in practice sitting across from clients doing this? And kind of that intersection of there's stuff that we do because we research it and it's interesting in theory. And then there's stuff we do in practice with clients. And I'm always fascinated with where those meet. Like how do we take ideas and put them into action? Yeah, because sometimes they don't work and you find yourself then thinking, well, what made me believe that was a good idea? <laughs> it's it's part of the entrepreneur's itch, right? Like I got this idea to try and then we try. It's like that did not work out as I expected. Yeah, yeah. But it kind of takes you to the next place. But I've always, you know, like you pointed out, I, I'm first and foremost, I am a financial planner. At the end of the day, what I do more than anything else is sit with clients and work on things that affect clients' financial well-being. And so early on, I think the thing that always drove me, you know, there was a part of me that once wanted to be a university professor, but that didn't work out. But that part of me kind of intersected with the part of me that looked at the way people behave and wanted to find the closest linkage that I could come up with between what actually worked empirically and what would blend in with the way human beings behave, and then continually to look for the places where those things intersect. Because we can have the greatest theory in the world that'll work if human if if your client is a spreadsheet, but most of our clients are not. And so it has to work also when they happen to be human beings. Amen. I, I, I love that. Like we, we can have great theories as long as your client is a spreadsheet. <laughs> well, I, and you know, yeah. Thaler and Sunstein wrote their book Nudge, and in the very beginning of the of the book, they you know they say that the world is about. I call them spreadsheets. They call them econs. So they're econs and humans in their language. And they estimate that about 20% of the world is econs, but the other 80 is humans. We might have slightly, well, I don't know if maybe all the econs want to be, they're the folks that want to be do-it-yourselfers. I was going to say, like, I, I think we have a smaller than representative share of Econs in our in our world as financial advisors, I think they're mostly self directed. Well, think we, we get yeah. more on the other end who are not econs and have had made enough mistakes and inflicted enough harm on themselves that eventually they go, "Oh my god, I just have to hire someone else to do this for me." Well, and they're the kind of people that, frankly, because being right is most important and admitting they were wrong is the most lethal thing to do is they don't want to do that. So they just keep trying to fix themselves. But we'll go with the 2080 split. And so, you know, it basically had to work and resonate with people that were in that 80% group. And I guess the thing that's always, you know, when you think about the the typical financial, what you should do if you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot, you know, buy low, sell high, save more, spend less, all of, none of those things appeal to us. None of them, uh, except for the things that you probably should do when you're retired and spending money, which is if it gets a little rough out there, cut back a bit. That actually goes with the grain. That is a tailwind. That is not against the grain and a headwind. And that really makes a big difference, I think. So as we as we dive in here, I think as a starting point, can you just give us an overview of 
your advisory firm, Cornerstone Wealth, as it exists today, just so everyone has a little bit of context for your firm, your clientele, who you work with, what what the business looks like? Sure. Well, we have clients that, you know, through kind of some different iterations, some go back over 25 years because I, you know, I basically began as a financial planner and knew that that was what I wanted to do by the time I was 25 years old and was doing that. So things have evolved as lots of things have evolved over that time period. But Cornerstone Wealth Advisors today is an RIA RIA firm. Um, Everyone who interacts with clients in any kind of advisory or or client service capacity is a CFP or is nearly there. We, um, the way we're currently structured, we have three financial planners who have primary relationship responsibility for clients. I'm one of those three. We have two financial planning residents, which are people who have graduated from financial planning degree programs. In many cases, not all, this is their first full-time job ever. It's certainly their first full-time job in the financial planning profession, and they aspire to have advisory roles with clients. And they are with us for the first three to four years of that career. And then they basically, they leave. And then we also have a client service associate. We outsource a number of things. We use Orion, so we don't have anybody reconciling things. So stuff that, that other firms might have people doing, God help you if you still do. You know, we don't. So our, our headcount right now is six, and that's up from where it was a few years earlier a little bit. And uh, we work with about 240 households in over half the U.S. states where people don't have any connection to Minnesota because no one wants to retire to Minnesota. And, I feel like um, they do They do tend to retire away from Minnesota more than retiring to Minnesota. They do. They do. But, you know, the, the state is considering a new PR campaign which says we have 10,000 lakes and winter's getting better. So, you know, come on down. So, but still, that's not really working all that well. So, um, I hope that's a helpful intro. For, for people who like numbers, we are, um, the assets under management are, is around $240 million. Does that give you what you wanted? Yeah, I think that helps. And and so as I as I think about this just from the math, so about 240 households, about 240 million under management, like average clients right there at a, at a million dollars. Are they you know, you've published all this research around retirement planning? Like, is the focus of your clientele retirees as well? Is that where you are where these are all folks in their you know, 60s and 70s? Well, they've gotten older like I have and like and that's funny to watch how that how that evolves. But, you know, very early on and I'm talking like 25 years ago, I kind of had this crystallization that I wanted to work and anything I was involved with, I wanted to be working with clients where doing financial planning well could actually make the difference between them um, being able to live the lives that they wanted to live or having to significantly compromise that. You know, we all know people that have so much money that they actually don't need to do planning well. They can mess a lot of things up and they'll still have enough money. And, you know, we have some clients 
where that's probably true. But that's not the meat and potatoes of who we work with. And so I think that kind of reflects our clients now. We're, we're attracting clients that are above that million dollar mark more often now than we're not. You might call those legacy clients. We've, uh, we've never told someone to leave because they were a great dance partner once, but not anymore. Yeah, that's, you know, I would say right now about 40 to 45% of our clients are retired. Another third of them plan to within the next five to eight years. And we've actually started to attract a fair number of clients that are actually under the age of 40 because of some special service and pricing models that we've put in place for them, which is really kind of cool. They're the, they're the clients that 25 years ago would have been considered really small. And we basically bet on these people and they have very successful careers and, and expand their earnings and, and assets geometrically. And, and then they become these kinds of clients that everybody wants, but you start with them 20 years earlier. So what it what is the what is the model or approach that you're using in trying to work with younger clients? Now why would you ask that, Michael? Well, Mo, I happen to have a personal fascination with that particular type of model. <laughs> well, the first thing was what I just said. We realized that, you know, we looked at we looked at clients today that might have two or three million dollars and were with us twenty years ago. And it's like, well, twenty years ago or we, they've worked with us for 20 years now, but saying 20 years ago, what did they look like? Um, and they looked very much like the kind of clients that today you might persuade yourself that you really wouldn't want to have because they weren't, you know, profitable enough or whatever. And that was, you know, per, you know, plainly stupid to think that. So then you go, well, how do you? how do you find a way to work with these folks? And we just started to charge them a percentage of their income. And with the idea that, well, as their income rises, our fees will go up, their planning work will get more complex, and it more or less will probably work out. Uh, and we'll find out. And we've been doing that for about a half a dozen years, more often with adult children of clients than you know people who have no prior connection to us. But the, the model isn't any different. And so that's how we do it. And it's they seem to like it. And what, and what percentage do you charge? Like, what are you finding is, is palatable to people? Well, we haven't really experimented with a lot. Early on, we started with a flat 1% of income. And so that's basically how we've kept it. But we do, because we're doing comprehensive plannings, we, planning, we see their tax returns, we see their W-2s, and we do make sure we count all their income. And it, And is it like literally just... I go to the front page of your tax return, go down to that AGI on the bottom right, and like 1% of that, that's our fee? Oh, no. We add back in your 401k contribution, Michael. Oh, okay. So you, you don't want to get you don't want to get punished for the fact that they're saving in pre-tax accounts. <laughs> that's exactly right, because that's just, you know, obviously that's good advice. Yeah. Well, you just have to have them save in Roths, and then their AGI will be higher. That's true. But, you know, that's why I wrote a column a couple years ago called When the Roth is Wrong. Yeah. Boy, that's something we see people that come in and talk about how tax diversified they are and all this stuff they're doing. And, and we just go, wow, do you know how much money you're spending to do that? Yeah, I, I continue to struggle with clients that, that come in. You know, there, there's this irony that like the people who are the most bothered by the taxes they're paying because their income is the highest are the ones that tend to do Roth accounts because they don't like all the taxes they're paying. And the truth is, those are usually the worst possible people to do Roth accounts. 
they'd be much better doing good old-fashioned boring pre-tax retirement accounts and convert it later when you retire and the rest of your wages go away and you can convert it at a lower tax bracket. You know, right. Even uh, if you want to pay 22% at the marginal federal rate later, or heaven forbid, 24 But yeah, it's true. And, and that's kind of one of the things that you know you, we're talking about practice and working with clients now. But, you know, it's it's interesting. You you learn a lot about what works from a from a messaging perspective simply by listening to people and sometimes by listening to what they don't say. You know, uh, there are the 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 financially well-off consumer knows a lot more today than they did 10 or 20 years ago. There's no question about that. And of course, the things that they think they know a lot about and are very pleased to tell you what they can already do are is almost entirely in the investment area. But the very people who will say, you know, will will so strenuously, you know, believe that they that they don't need any help in in area number one, are quick to admit that they need a lot of help in area number two. And area number two is tax planning. And as you know, as if we just go, whenever we just go there, we get a lot of openness. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to have to have a plan for you know my RMD start next year, and I'm going to have to have a plan. It's like, well, buddy, you needed a plan about six years ago yeah. when we could have been doing all those partial Roth conversions while your income was low before you hit where your RMDs are imminent. But right, but it just serves to point out, you know, again, this is people's humanness. Is that it's like. Okay, you know, I'll I'll find an entrance or I'll find an entree into the conversation where I am not going where I'm not going into the wind. You know, when when you when you're going against that kind of force, which is their resistance, you won't win. You you know, the you're 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 even if you can do great things for them, you will never find a way for that persuasion, if you will, to occur then. So just stop. You know, you've got to find another you know, another thing to talk about. And it's been fascinating in the last few years to see as more and more baby boomers have retired or getting closer to that moment that they just readily admit that they know they have a problem and they don't have a clue about how it works and how to address it. So, yeah, happy to share that. I, I am curious, though, just going back for a moment to the services for younger clients as, as well. What do you do for them for this 1% of income fee? Well, we find that rather than doing what a financial planner might think of as a plan, what however you deliver a plan, what we do more for them is planning, which is to take the, the, the things that they're doing right now, it's, that are going on in their life right now, and focus in on those things. So for instance, how much money should we be saving? You know, we just got a promotion or somebody just went back to work, you know, rather than say, well, we're just going to, we're going to rerun your retirement projection, which, you know, good grief when you're 33 years old has so many assumptions in it that it can't possibly be right. We just say, oh, well, there's this great piece of research out there from about 10 years ago that Wade Fowl did on safe savings rates. Which basically says, if this if this percentage of your income over this period of time is going into your retirement savings, then you're going to be fine. And if you can be at that number or a little bit above it, 
you're going to be fine and we can fine tune it later. It's kind of like, you know, there's two parts to saving for a kid's college education. There's the, there, the, there's the first part where you know you should be doing something, but you have no idea how this child is going to turn out as a parent. You have no idea what kind of school they're going to go to. You have no idea what the landscape is going to look like. You have no idea if they're even going to go to college. And the second part is you start to have a very good idea what this is going to look like. It's like, oh, we really are going to need a lot of money. And so then we ramp it up. And so no one can save for college on a, on a flat dollar amount per year. It has to go up by large increases because no one can afford to do that level of savings. You know, that's that consistent saving amount number, you know, when their kid is three years old because their income isn't high enough. So, you know, it's just continuing to look at things that change and go, okay, now that we know this, how would we change this? How do we think about that? So it's, it's, it's much more, I guess you would say, dynamic and flexible. And then and we have almost a, a checklist of things that we want to go over where we'll say, you know, well, let's talk about your life insurance. Let's talk about your disability coverage. You know, let's look at the health plan that you're choosing. Um, it's just the, all the kinds of things that proactively we know that good financial decision making and planning needs to look at given where they are in life. And we do that. And then when we meet with them again, usually that just it's it's uh, for them, it's it's once a year. We'll come back to all those things and get updates and update those recommendations until they're 40. And then we say, okay, time's up. You don't get this deal anymore. And that's how, and that's specifically how you limit it. Like the, the 1% of income fee is just, you only get that if you're under 40. Right. And then we have the ability to extend them if we want, like, you know, well, one spouse is three years older than the other. So when are you 40? Well, you know, and so we prepare them for it and a lot, you know, it, but But I was going to ask, like, how do you, you know, how do you make sure you don't have your retired clients come in and be like, wait, 1% of my retired income is a whole lot lower than 1% of my retirement portfolio. So John, how about you charge me 1% of income and not 1% of assets? Yeah. Well, that doesn't, well, well, that, that conversation doesn't go on very long. Right. But, but that's why, cause you say, uh, you know, well, since you are retired and not under the age of 40, that is not an option for you here. Right. Right. And we specifically on our website have, you know, it says, you know, financial planning for generations X and Y. So that enables us to, uh, um, people pretty clearly get the idea of where they fit and where they don't. Which to me is always one of the interesting pieces around segmentation. I know I, I have known a lot of advisors that wanted to build alternative models for younger clients and get really worried about like what if what if my existing clients want to do that that fee structure as well. And you know, as you said, like as you put on your website, it doesn't have to be that hard. Just say, here's our service for retirees and here's our service for Gen Xers and Gen Ys and like your retirees aren't X's and Y's, they're they're not going to self-select into that group. It's not for them. Like it gets pretty clear right. pretty quickly. Oh, right. And then we just tell the older clients, says, well, your situation's much more complex than your children. And, you know, and uh, and then they like to hear that. Interesting. Interesting. And and so you've got this base of 240 clients and 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 three financial planners. And I was struck that you know you you simply said like the firm has three financial planners, you just happen to be one of them. 
so can you share a little bit more about that of what what that model looks like of who has what clients who leads what clients you know i think for a lot of firms with with six employees it tends to be a uh, you know a founder who is the lead advisor some support advisors who help them and you know it kind of runs down like a pyramid and that's not at all how you frame your planners with clients no um i would say that i'm in less than half the client meetings that are that occur so you know it's been a wonderful thing over the years to have people who've had very long stays at Cornerstone that are very, very good at what they do and aspire to be very, very good. And where it's just not, it's neither efficient nor necessary for us all to be in the meetings. And yet, you know, in client conversations, a lot of times we can finish each other's sentences. Yeah, so that's what I that's what I mean. We have Andrea Eaton, who has been at Cornerstone for 15 years, is much more, you know, has a lot of meetings that I'm not in. Sarah Cantor, who is a younger, earlier in her career as a CFP, is is you know, as she continues to take on more and more, has more, I guess I'll say, has more and more of client interactions and meetings that she doesn't need any anyone else in the room that has more experience for her than, than she does. I tend to be in more of those meetings. So yeah, that's, that's what I mean by that. That's what that looks like. And so, how, like how are clients, I know, set out or allocated, like are are you ultimately still, quote unquote, the the lead to clients, but then they support you and in certain meetings you just don't need to be in? Or they're literally like some clients are John's clients, some are Andrea's clients, some are Sarah's clients, and 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 they're separated out that way? Yes, it's that way. And there are instances where two of the three of us are in the meeting, but there are, but I would say we each have about 50% of the, or more of the clients who that we never see. And so, yeah, it, it true there, it, it, that's different from a, a scenario where, you know, there's a, there's one person that is in all the meetings and obviously has a lot of stuff that that person doesn't do, but the, the, so there are. I'm just trying to think if I need to say any more about that. Don't think so. Well, so so how do clients get set as far as who's the who's the primary, who's the lead? Like, are these clients that Andrea and Sarah brought in versus you, so they're the lead on them? Do you transition clients to them? Like, how do, how do they get the clients they're responsible for versus the ones that you're primarily responsible for? Right. Well, we made we've made started making that distinction a number of years ago, and now whenever there's a new client, it's basically what is that perspective that new client's I guess family tree. So if there's a client that Andrea works with, and that client refers someone to us, that referral is going to be Andrea's client. And if it's somebody that Sarah or I work with, it's gonna it's gonna be one for you know one of ours. It's not gonna be Andrea's. And then if it's somebody who is has no connection at all, they read an article, they contact Cornerstone. We have an initial conversation. Andrea and I are both in those conversations and uh, those initial ones, and then basically decide where that person, where that client is going to go as far as who works with them and who is, if you will, the lead advisor. And so that's just based on like 
their their needs, uh, personality. Hey, like I, I, we just talked to this person. And I think they get along better with you, Andrea, than me. So why don't you take this one? Right, and and in that conversation, it's one where the, the initial conversation was with both of us. So there wasn't a you know I talked with them or you talked with them. There was it was we talked with them. And and can I ask like how does compensation structures then work within the firm? Like are the are advisors that work under you on a like salary and bonus structure or are these revenue sharing payments where you know depending on where clients go amongst your advisors also impacts you as the business owner since you get paid on the bottom line as well? It's kind of a combination of the two. So Every, you know, every advisor has a, I guess you could call it a, a total, think about it as number that, that they're, they're going to be paid. And it's really a function of their experience level, the degree to which they can independently deliver advice, the number and the other roles that they play in the firm. And, and for example, let's say that you were one of those people, Michael, and based on your, all those things that I mentioned, that we determined that your your number was going to be a hundred and sixty thousand dollars. One of then you'd have another then there'd be another choice to make, and and that would be to decide how much of that one sixty was going to be base salary, and how much of it was going to be what we would call bonus. So the base salary piece, let's just say you wanted to split it evenly, and you know. I agreed that that was okay. So 80,000 would just be paid out like a flat salary every pay period straight across. The other 80, which we would call bonus, the question is, well, how much of that do you actually get? And it, it, and if you, if you do the job you are supposed to do and you don't have any, you know, big mess ups or anything like that, um, you are going to earn a hundred percent of that $80,000 bonus. However, that $80,000 number is tied to the revenue of the firm, not the revenue of a subset of the firm's clients. So that $80,000 is subject to a multiplier. It could be multiplied simply by one, so you get 80. It could be multiplied by something as much as one and a half or as little as eight-tenths of a percent. Revenue. Revenue over revenue this year basically over revenue last year. And so essentially if if our reven if the revenue change is no more than two percent up or down, then you'd get the eighty thousand. If the if the revenue changes by two to four percent in either direction, then then if it's if it's grown by that level then your multiplier is i think the way we, the, i think the number is 1.15 so you'd get 80,000 plus 15% more than that because the firm did well the idea is that you are the level at which you interact with clients has has a real opportunity to impact their experience they can refer people in. They can leave. They can be happy. They can be unhappy. And while there are other forces that affect the firm's revenue that you and I have no control over, you have a lot, you know, as you advance in your relationships with clients, you, of course, have more ability to impact that. Okay. I, I see. Because I was going to ask, like, you know, if it's just, 
hey, you can have a portion as base and a portion as bonus, like why would you not just pick 100% as base and not put any of your your compensation to risk as bonus? But the answer is because if the if the firm grows, the portion you take as bonus can get a, a nice upward multiplier effect. And so you get to decide how much of your comp do you want to put at risk to be variable up or down based on the firm's growth targets and growth success. But if you're willing to put more of yourself at risk, you can get more upside out of it. Correct. We get to decide. Normally, in the, on, of course, you don't just come in and be at 160. You started less. And as your compensation grew, one of the philosophies is that um, as you have more and more ability to affect the client's experience, then a bigger and bigger percentage of your compensation should be on the bonus side. And and that's even true in our residency program, you know, that in once someone starts the third year of their residency and they're interacting in more and more meaningful ways with clients, they are already influencing that client experience. And so I think for them it's like 10% of their salary of their total compensation is in this bonus side. They don't have any say in that matter. And but fortunately it's worked out for them better than if we hadn't done that. And 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 these are these targets up or down, like they go up or down, right? So if my bonus is supposed to be 80, but the firm has a bad year and revenue is down, like I get a negative 15% multiplier and my eighty thousand dollar bonus turns out to be only sixty-eight. Well, the the downside multipliers are less let's just say hurt less than the upside okay, multipliers feel good. <laughs> they're gentler. There aren't as many of them. And when I think it goes 1.15, then 1.33, then 1.5 on the downside, it's 0.9 and 0.8. There is no, there's nothing below 0.8. Okay. But it, I guess the, the idea, like it, it gives them a little bit more incentive to try to conserve revenue, save clients, do what they can. And tough times for the firm or down markets or whatever it is because it it reflects directly on their comp. I don't look at it that way. I I don't see people saying, well, I could I could make this additional effort. And I think I will because it affects my compensation this way. I look at it as, you know, putting the client's interest first, showing due care, treating people the way you would treat your mother. You know, when you people just do the things that are in their nature, but in doing the things that are in their their nature and based on what they know will work for the clients, they are almost as a byproduct affecting the client experience. And so I think it's important for people to to know that that they are getting back, you know, the at least if you know everything works out in their favor, you know, they have the ability to get more back than they anticipated because they helped the client. The client's experience was better than they would have otherwise expected. So it's I guess it's it's less trying to incentivize behavior per se and more of just when things are going well, we'll share a little bit more of the wealth with people who are doing good work. Yeah, that's that's fair. And then, yeah, and then we just, we do a 15% profit sharing on top of all that. And so talk to us a little bit as well about these financial planning residents. You know, you, you mentioned them briefly, like they're, they're not advisors. They're, I guess, a step down. They're more like at a paraplanner level. 
they start with you, they're there for three or four years, and then they leave. So what's the what's the structure with the, with these residents? Well, if you if you think about, I'll look at it from the the, the residents' perspective, and let me let me start with the firm perspective. You know, every firm has things to serve clients well. They they have things that have to be done well. That frankly, you don't need any financial planning knowledge at all to do. And then then there are things that need to be done well that early level planning technical knowledge without a lot of experience that someone who let's just say is is right out of a financial planning education program can do or can be taught to do in fairly short order. And then there are other things that of course only only come with experience and I look at that third, I, I look at those two categories together as the, the, uh, the second and the third category as these are what you need advisor level people to do. And I call that advisory capacity. If you are going to have 240 clients and they have certain things that only people with a financial planning knowledge and experience can do, you need to, the firm needs to have that level of advisory capacity. Now, if you've been doing this, Michael, for 12 years and someone else has only been doing it for one, there's a heck of a lot more you can do and do well than that other person. And so we need to find a way for you to be doing more of the things that only you can do, while at the same time also making sure that the other stuff is done exceptionally well. And I have a belief that everything that is done with a client is done better when it is done by someone through the lens of the comprehensive financial planning process or that overall planning orientation. I think it was uh, a long time ago, it was either Guy Cumby or Dave Yeske, I heard once say that, that financial planning done well is more than the sum of its parts. That, you know, in, whether it's investment management or retirement planning or risk management or cash flow or tax planning or estate planning, okay, I just named what, five things there? That, that if, that, that simp, but if I have five people who independently do each of those well, that will not be as valuable to the client as some overall element where everything is takes the other aspects into account. And so as a result, well, we need that kind of advisory capacity. And so the idea is to have folks that are early in their careers that the, the things that we don't want you to be doing, Michael, you've been there for 10 years. You know, we don't need you to be doing tax projections. We don't need you to be figuring out how much Roth conversion should be done. That's something that with, you know, we could teach, you know, someone by the time they're nine months out of Virginia Tech with their financial planning degree, if they're really good, they can be doing that. And so, so the firm needed more of those kinds of people. And the firm also, you know, firms also have an issue with, okay, as those people succeed in that, they get to a place where they want to be doing more and more and more and more. And smaller firms and even bigger firms can get top heavy. Right. It, it, it's sort of the challenge of that pyramid model, right? If you have like one senior person at the top supported by two or three associate planners, like, that's great and can leverage the person, but if all three associate planners are fantastically awesome, in a couple of years, you're going to have three people who want to be lead advisors, which means you need triple the clients to feed all three of them. 
And even if your firm is growing, like just the whole nature of having a small top and a big base means eventually when your base of of entry-level advisors wants to move up, either you need a zillion new clients because you got to feed all of them at once or or you or you have a problem they're competing or they're leaving because they don't have opportunity and and you've got turnover issues at that point you have culture issues and you know people are there's a limited amount of clients so there's a limited amount of turf and so we just decided this is kind of that same almost power versus force thing we were talking about, where if there's a force that you can't get around, don't try to fight it. So what we said is, okay, when you get to that point where you're ready for that, and we really don't need you up at that level, we just aren't growing that fast. Most firms can't grow that fast. You know, going from two to three lead advisors, my gosh, that's a 50, that's 50% growth. You can't do that. You can't do that every couple of years. So what we say to, what we say is, well, then you have to leave. And well, you know, and this is actually a whole part of the design. And and the idea came from, uh, you know, you know, we all this is this problem, this challenge isn't something that hasn't been known for a while. But it was at a an FPA retreat, probably ooh, back in two thousand, I want to say, in nine, eight or nine, where in a in a dread, I was on this panel, a career development panel. And we as panelists were dreadful. I felt bad for the audience because we really didn't have that much to say. And it was painful because, my God, there was still half an hour to go. And so the moderator just started inviting comments from the audience. And Carolyn McClanahan, who at that time was relatively new as a financial planner, having made her transition from being a practicing physician, stood up and said, I don't know why we don't have a residency program like they do in the medical profession, where you go to school, you learn all of this stuff from from the books and such, and then you go and you can get your, you know, you get your bedside manner, you get your experience applying this under the supervision of someone who really can help you learn how to apply this. She said, I don't know how we do that. And I'm sitting up there and I, I said, I don't know why we don't either. That sounds like it fixes just about everything. Because, you know, then they have to leave. Um, We don't have any of the things that you were just describing. And you have all of the things that I was saying that we needed. And the, the planners that have been there for six or eight or 10 or 12 years don't have to be doing so much of the stuff that it's not real efficient or profitable for them to be doing. And so the residency program began with the idea of doing that. And so when we say we have two residents in our structure, what that means is that we have basically one person that's in the first half of their residency and someone else in the second half, because even as someone moves through a three-year period, boy, you can move quickly up that learning curve. And if you're, as you start to be ready to do new things, there are other things you need to stop doing to take off your plate. And so you teach the new resident to do those things and they follow in your footsteps. And in theory, that's how it's all supposed to work. And I'm just, I'm fascinated by the by the structure, because you just, you know, you, you take the, you take the, what I feel like is the fear that most advisors have, which is I hire a young person as an associate planner. I put this time and energy into training and developing them and then they leave and, and you're making it a fait accompli. Like 
yes, we will hire them and we will train and develop them and we and they will leave. In fact, we're going to require them to move on after three or four years when their residency program is done. So on the one end, like I'm I'm I think it's interesting that you know, you you can now hire people and just sort of manage around all of those cultural challenges that crop up when they get three or four years into their career and say, I'm ready to move up. And you go, uh, we don't have enough new clients for you to move up. There's just not enough clients for you. And then they're, they're figuring out what's going on. You've, you've set expectations that they're likely to move on at the end. But for most firms, turnover is time consuming and stressful. And it's a pain in the backside to keep retraining new people. So how, like, how do you think about that? Well, you definitely have to decide which pain in the backside you want to have. Yeah, I guess we we really sort of had like you can have this you you can have the pain in the butt of people who want to move up and they can't, or you can have the pain in the butt of planning to not move them up but move them on, and then you have to keep training new ones. Like it, kind of a trade off there, I suppose. Well, yes, that that is that's true. You know, it's funny in talking to people, they it all the conversation always comes around to this. There's the wait a minute, they leave. Yes, they do. You know, Casey Gott had this great quote once where he, you know, in describing this to someone because there was a time when Experient tried to do this, and then because they were so top heavy, they realized that they actually needed these people to stay because they. They needed exactly what these people could do in three years, which is what all of the the the, the longer term senior advisors didn't want to be doing anymore. So, but before they they did that, Casey came up with this great quote, which was, "You don't get to keep the puppy; they have to go after you've raised them." And I said, "Well, you at least have to do that with the first one, because if you keep if the person stays, then you don't have a residency program." You have a career development track. You have an entry-level position that goes on and on and on and on and hopefully works out really well. It, it, there's nothing wrong with that. It, that's great if you can keep doing that. But you clearly don't have a residency program, at least not in the model that Carolyn described that's more or less exactly like the medical profession. And one of the interesting things we found, especially with people in their 20s, and oftentimes in their earlier 20s, is that, you know, they, and they, we've, they've told us after the fact that they stay because they know that they get to leave. Like, would I stay three years if I thought it was open-ended? And nobody really knew because it wasn't open-ended. But the idea of saying, well, this is a three-year commitment. I can make that commitment. I wouldn't want to live in Minneapolis or Houston or wherever it might be. You know, I wouldn't want to move there and live there indefinitely because I want to be here or I want to be there. But I can see myself doing that for three years and I'll make that decision. It just takes a lot of some of the other things off the table. That's an interesting point. Like you get a you get a unique opportunity to attract different and potentially better talent, especially if you're not already in a, I don't know, a, a dense metropolitan area that people are moving to in the first place. You can get more people than you otherwise would have because they simply say, you know, like I, I don't know if I necessarily want to set my career and my lifetime building with you in the city you're in, but like, hey, you got a good firm and opportunity. I get to learn and do good stuff for for three years and then to make the next stage. Like, sure, I'll do that. In the, in the same way that I have, we have both clients and I have friends that have been through 
you know, the, the medical residency world. And the same thing happens. They're like, yeah, we don't plan to live there in the long run, but we're going to, you know, X city for the next three years while my spouse goes through residency. And that's the deal. And then after that, we'll figure out where we actually want to build our lives. And it's just, it's, it's an okay, normal thing. That's part of the career professional development journey for them. Right. But it is kind of funny, you know, back after this thing in 2009 came back and I sat down with Andrea and Mike Branham, who was at Cornerstone for a number of years. And we talked about this and would this make sense and would we want to do this and how would this affect them? And and we decided we wanted to do it. And we, you know, we thought we knew how it was going to work. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways we were right, but nobody ever thought of that one. <laughs> it's really fun. No one ever thought of the notion of, you know, there are people at this age probably don't want to, you know, they wouldn't come to Minneapolis for an open-ended commitment. Some would. That feature was not one of the things you were actually anticipating originally. It just turned out that way. Right, right, right. Nobody was that smart to foresee that. And yet, you know, not that we ever, I, mean, I don't think any of our residents would have been like, oh God, I wish, because some of them actually extended to a fourth year. None of them gave any indication of, oh my God, I don't, I don't know how I lasted beyond year two. But as they, you know, as they talked to and interacted with their, their peers, you know, what are you doing now that we've, you know, we're all two years out of graduation, you know, as you know, people stay in touch with their classmates. We started to hear that story, or at least that perspective as, as people evaluate this. And it was kind of funny because every, we all said, we never thought of that. <laughs> so you had you had mentioned you kind of had the like the in theory version of the residency, and then you've actually been doing this for to- uh, over a number of years now. So, what else have you learned or surprised you about how it went or what worked and didn't work versus what you'd expected originally? Yeah, well, we've had we've had three residents graduate. One of them stayed. We had grown to the point where we needed another advisor. So like we were talking earlier, where you aren't growing that fast to absorb everyone as they move up that path. But every now and then you every once in a while, you have grown that much where you do need that. And so that person, that's Sarah, one of our residents stayed and two have left. I think the biggest thing that we've learned is that being a resident is hard and that being a having been a really good student and a nice person you know is not enough and so the things that we wouldn't have put on the list that turn out to be really important which of course makes it harder to you know to find someone that has all of these characteristics one of them is writing expository writing you know any financial planner does a lot of their work by communicating in written form to clients and you know that was the that was the biggest technological revolution in in financial in, in in any field it's when i could communicate something to you in writing and it did not involve a piece of paper and so you need to be able to take abstract concepts describe them in a way that um is frankly has good English that is at the level of the other communications that clients are used to receiving from Cornerstone. And fortunately or unfortunately, we have a lot of good writers. So you need to be. And I don't know, I don't know where one gets that. I think it's you I but we know that it doesn't come from taking a class. 
I mean, you can you can start it and learn some tips, but it it takes a while to develop. Right. In a smaller office environment, the way people interact, rely on each other, work independently, avoid annoying each other, all of those things matters a lot. You know, whether you want to call that socialization or whatever, you know, that can make a big difference for better or for worse. It's harder if you're an only child. I don't know how good a, I was a firstborn. I don't know how good a resident I would have been. I probably wouldn't have been hired on the, on the Colby A, which we use as an assessment. I have the lowest fact finder score in the office. You would have been a terrible resident. I would have been a terrible resident. That's right. Even though I was a good writer, it's like, oh my, it's like, so, and then the third thing is that, um, and I don't mean to say, I, I don't mean this to come off the wrong way. But having a general orientation toward gratitude and appreciation is incredibly valuable, just in in a sense of being a little less self-centered and a little more able to just appreciate what's going on around you. It's really hard to test for that. I was going to say, are, like, are these things you try to test for now, writing ability, the way they interact and work together and sort of this attitude of gratitude worldview? Oh God, yes. We have spouses in our environment, in our in our firm, you know, we there are a lot of us know each other a lot. And we we have a great time when we get together with spouses and significant others. And so people have told, you know, their spouses or or partners about the process. And and the reaction from one was, God, I never would have done that. I would never put up with that, all those steps. Um, there are actually three different writing assignments in the selection process. So like you give people writing assignments as part of the how you hire them. Oh my gosh, yes. And the last one, which the last search, which Andrea mostly ran, well, she did run. She even told them what the one thing that had to be addressed in their cover letter. Then we give them one that is, we give them a financial planning. I know, here's what we do. We got worried that, you know, we were getting, we were getting the writing ability of people's parents or roommates. So we we literally say for this next interview, because these are people all over the country. So yes, we can do video conferencing, but we say, Michael, you know, you, for your next, you know, congratulations, you've made the next round. We want to set up a time. It'll take one hour. We want to set up a specific time and you need to be at your computer with internet access. And then at four o'clock, we will send you an email. So the email comes and it has some relatively simple, usually it's a financial planning related question. And we say, um, you need to email your response back to us within 60 minutes. I had evolved almost the exact same version of uh, in the hiring process at, at Pinnacle back when I was responsible for, for hiring our planners, you know, uh, give them a writing exercise, set like a specific time, you know, for a while we would do them in our office, but as hiring became more virtual, we would do them virtually. But same thing, like, you know, we'll set a time that works for you. But, you know, your next one hour interview is not going to be a video call with me. You know, we're going to set it at 4 p.m. on Thursday. And like at 4 p.m., I'm going to send you an email with a writing assignment. And at 5 p.m., you're going to send me back whatever you got. And yeah, you know, we would, same sort of thing. Like we would give planning scenarios, but to try to see if they could sort of talk through concepts, but also just self uh, sort of, awareness of clients. Like one of the ones we used quite a bit was, you know, you just got an email from your clients who says, 
my my mother passed away and i'm i'm inheriting about a half a million dollars and you know we've got a a mortgage on the house of about 400 and so i'm wondering if i should you know use the inheritance to pay off the mortgage and so like great sort of conceptual question right like we can talk about investment returns versus mortgage do they understand the tax deduction on mortgage the you know the after tax return versus the after tax cost of interest like there's all sorts of interesting technical stuff but the but the number one thing that that I would actually watch for whenever we gave that writing exercise is is the first is the first line of the email that you write dear client i'm so sorry your mother died right like can they can they pull themselves out of the technical situation to also recognize this is an empathy moment first? Like your client just told you their mom died. So actually answering the math question is important because they asked it. So you do need to give an answer. But you also need to be able to address that they're grieving because their mom just died. And if you can't, if you don't have the presence of mind for that, that's a concern. Or conversely, well, when if we were doing this with younger and newer folks in the industry, like the ones who had the presence of mind to realize that and include that as the opening of their letter and then answering the question very much stood out because they had a a different level of empathetic awareness that got demonstrated when they could pause and say, I'm going to answer your math question, but I'm going to take a moment to show some empathy for your family tragedy first. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the final step, but when people become finalists is we bring them Obviously, we bring them to town, and one one thing that happens is they sit in on a on a real client meeting, which is important because you know these folks are in client meetings from their first week. We tell them they will be in four or five client meetings their first week and every week thereafter. And when our first resident finished after she stayed for four years, um, Christine D'Amico, who's now on the faculty at Virginia Tech as an adjunct, which is really cool. So some of the, some of our client stories and case studies are, you know, a part of the, the first, uh, the, the intro to financial planning class at Virginia Tech. It's really kind of fun. And so we counted up how many client meetings had she been in, in her four years or, and she went like 800. And so when we say, you know, when, when, when people coming into our profession, you just said industry, I say profession, we might want to talk about that. But, you know, it's like, yeah, you really do. And just like when you're in a medical residency, yeah, you really do walk into hospital rooms, or you really do walk into patient appointments and sit there with, you know, the the real people and have res- and run those meetings by the time your time is over. Anyway, the, it, we're back at the final interviews and you come into this meeting and then we send you off into a room and we say, okay, you need to write an email to this client. You have 30 minutes and we just want you to summarize for them what you consider to be the three most important things that we talked about. And can you do it in a way that probably requires some complex sentences. Can they, do they actually come off well? We're getting your first, maybe no more than your second draft. You know, you read it and then you write it and then you proofread it and you fix a few things and then time's up. How good is it? And uh, yeah, so th- that's the third writing assignment. 
And we literally had a finalist a scenario once where the two people, the two leading candidates who came in as finalists, you know, we'd done a lot of things with them. So there was one person, let's just say candidate A in our minds ranked slightly above candidate B. And it got to this point and A was really disappointing in, in how they did this and B was off the charts good. And that was it. Case closed. Interesting. Yeah, because otherwise you're looking and saying, uh, look, I get the other candidate was really strong throughout, but like if I hire this person, I'm going to have to back check every email they send for the next two years. And I don't have the time That's or right. interest to do that. <laughs> so they're going to take the job. And we can't send them to a class to fix it. Yeah, or at least writing skills take a, a, a lot of time and years to improve. It's not quite go to one class and learn how to do this and then that's that. Right, right. Yeah, so that's the residency program. And we find that, you know, when people do leave and they kind of decide where they, uh, the geographic area where they want to be, we have had our, you know, one resident had three job offers, another had four, just limited to their geographic area. I would encourage anyone listening who's thinking about some of the same problems and, and growth pains, I guess, that you described um, earlier, Michael, to really noodle through this model and see if it might address more of the things that they really feel they need to to continue growing then they will stir up other things that they wish weren't true like yep you do have to uh, every you know every three years you have well actually every year and a half you have a new person starting they have to learn all over again you know how we fill out these forms or how we get you know how do we get a Roth conversion done or how do we do a tax projection although we joking and we don't joke they think we're joking. We say, well, by about six months in, you'll be able to do a simple tax return in your head. We actually ask people, we say, you know, so when you're out with friends and the check comes and there's that moment where no one wants to pick it up and start doing the math, what do you do? The right answer is I'm usually the one that people look at or I kind of like to figure it out or, you know, um, or at the very least, I have an app. <laughs> I can calculate. So shifting tracks a little bit, I I am really interested to know, just as as someone that's done a lot of this retirement research around, you know, the infamous question like how much can people spend safely from their portfolios and how do you manage that? What is your retirement planning process look with clients? I guess I'm I'm kind of wondering both what what do you do up front, like just what's the retired clients the new retired clients process that they go through with you? And then what does it look like on an ongoing basis as well? Yeah. Well, you know, fairly early on, we, we talk about, well, well, let's start by saying that some people have enough money that they don't have to worry whether the level at which they want to spend is sustainable or not. You know, they just have enough money or they have a low enough lifestyle cost or they have enough, you know, defined benefit sources of income that, you know, if they have a million dollars, they only need $2,000 a month pre-tax. It's like we don't have to – none of this stuff matters in, in that scenario. But in a lot of cases, people do. And so we talk a lot when, when – and it might be a long-term client that is now – you know, it's the first time they've said to us that, you know, I've always said I wanted to retire. We've always been targeting, you know, me to retire in my, you know, in my mid-60s. And, and you know, now I'm 61 
And, I, you know, and from everything we know, everything we look at, they're on track and, and such. But we haven't really talked about how does it work other than, you know, we'll do, you know, we'll allude to things like, especially like at a time like this, we would say to someone who is, you know, three to five years away, boy, I bet you were, I bet you're glad you're not retiring now like with this market and of course they you know, were kind of baiting them and 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 and, and they go oh yeah and i go well you know we have clients who are and you know and and so just want you to know that when when you are in this position that the 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 approach that we use which is which is evidence based it gets them through and and we'll we'll talk about how this works and how you know how this will work for you and we we just we just want to keep planting those seeds oftentimes at moments where it's not head on it's just something it's just a little something it's an, if this were a theatrical performance it's an aside this is an aside in a play and and then from there we'll we'll say well let's talk about how this works and one of the things that i think that we've learned in applying this with clients more and more is that we we have to do a better and better job about distinguishing between what we kind of call core expenses and discretionary and so under ha, distinguishing that breakdown has a lot to say about how much lifestyle you can afford. Now, and so we'll talk to clients about their spending and we will and and we will work with them to get much more specific about their spending and then we will we will tell us like well they, you know, exclusive of taxes and and healthcare costs, you know, their their list of expenses is $10,000 a month. And we'll say, well, the way we look at this Seventy four hundred of this is core, and twenty six hundred of it is discretionary, and that leads to a different capital requirement than if eighty four hundred was core and sixteen hundred was discretionary. So you're like they just mark down. I mean, what? Uh, so I'm going to try to think of how this happens in practice. Like you, you give them some worksheet or or spreadsheet or something, and say put down all of your household expenses or the ones you're anticipating retirement, and then they'll send this document back to you. And then you go through the list and assign them which ones are core and which ones are discretionary and then start having a conversation about it. Right. Because yes. So that's, that's what it looks like to clients. And frankly, this can be you know, this can be really difficult for, you know, not only for new clients, but also existing clients to do because, yeah, they kind of have a budget. But all we've known before is that they had a lot of discretionary income. They were saving a lot of money and and we really didn't care. It really didn't matter about this distinction. But we need to understand and when we say just and that term discretionary is Sometimes it, I would love to come up with a better one because what it, what it, what it suggests is this is stuff that you can live without. And that's not true. One of the big things we've learned is, uh, and I don't mean we, like we, you know, at Cornerstone have somehow learned this. I mean, all of us who interact with clients and retired clients is that, you know, the ability to travel at a certain level is every bit as core and central to the retirement that they want to live as the need to buy the, you know, to pay the grocery bill and the real estate taxes. 
I'll admit I've, I've always struggled or I guess not always, but like for many years have, have struggled similarly with this idea of like segmenting out core and discretionary. Some people call it essential versus discretionary because then you like, you start actually trying to categorize expenses and you get some that are just awkward, like uh, cable TV and Netflix, like discretionary or essential, right? This is not quite food, clothing, shelter level stuff, but you know, people watch a lot of movies and some retired people watch a whole lot of movies. So like ask them to envision their lifestyle without access to television. And it's pretty life changing to them. Never mind when you get into restaurants, travel, eating out where there's a social dynamic, there's a community dynamic. And, you know, yes, you don't need it to survive, but losing that quote unquote discretionary discretionary expense would still have, you know, essential expense level psychological trauma to them to have to go through that kind of lifestyle change. And what we found is that it helps to think about it less qualitatively and more quantitatively. And here's what I mean. So let's take the travel piece, for instance. The the distinguishing characteristic between the two types of expenses is is this going to continue for the rest of your life in some form? Or is it going to decline and or eventually stop at some point along the way? Oh, that's That's what matters. That's interesting to segment. So now when I think about it that way, like, okay, travel is in the discretionary budget because it's going to decline. Like I'm going to do less in my nineties than I do in my sixties. Ironically, cable TV may still be relatively stable here. I'm doing that throughout, but it's, it's the, you know, the, it's just literally the, the expenses that tend to self mitigate and wind down over time versus the ones that are not buckling no matter what. And the, you know, where, whereas I'm spending my, you know, my, my food my eating money now is including going to places that give me enjoyable experiences that I want. Later on in life, I will go somewhere else and I will eat and the food will probably not be as good and the experience might not be quite as stimulating, but the dollar amount isn't going to be all that much different given the amount of money than my assisted living monthly fee that goes for the meal plan. So that actually becomes core. I, I almost feel like like as opposed to core versus discretionary, it's 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 almost a, a like fixed expenses versus dynamic or adaptive expenses, right? Like some that just naturally adapt and adjust over time, either to our world, our lifestyle, our health changes, whatever's going on, and others are just fixed. Like I'm gonna have my I'm gonna have my house, and I'm gonna have my Netflix no matter what. Like those are non negotiables for me. Yeah, it's permanent versus non-permanent, maybe is the best way to put it. But because the other thing about these non-permanent expenses is that the amount of spending from year to year tends to be quite volatile. And so, you know, we, first of all, we, and we don't ever want to be in a position of, we want to minimize the amount of times, but we get to be, we get asked to give permission. So, Every client. So the the reason that we want to do back to back to what does this look like and what's the process? The reason that we have to have this distinction is that number one, we need to be sure that their permanent core expenses, as well as the you know, as well as their healthcare costs, as and insurance premiums and the income taxes, are being funded by some sustainable income source that has the ability 
over time to to adjust as cost of living goes up, whether that's social security or defined benefit pension or some form of systematic withdrawal, safe withdrawal approach. I mean, even the 4% rule works if that's the way you want to do it. Annuitization also works, obviously, for this. But it's like, okay, we know the capital and the resources that are going to fund these types of expenses. And then we have the rest and we want to construct a pot of money so that you get to decide when it's worth, you know, instead of, you know, when it's worth taking $15,000 out of this pot of money for travel this year versus the normal nine or 10 that you normally do. And so do you like, do you literally get to the point where you're creating like buckets where there's a, you know, this is the portfolio bucket that covers your core expenses. This is the portfolio bucket that's going to cover your discretionary expenses and start segmenting them out that way. Yes. We have actually have retired clients that might get, have three different portfolios and three, get three different quarterly reports. They have their core portfolio, which has its own allocation and follows, you know, in our case, the dynamic withdrawal policies that, uh, and they literally are followed to the T. If you go back and you read the 2006 Journal of Financial Planning article that I co-authored with William Klinger, the computer scientist, and then you have this discretionary pot, which you may spend down to nothing over eight to 10 years, or, you know, you may never really want to touch it. But it's there, and um, because most and and this this is cycle. This is the client psychology piece. This is we do this because it matches the way humans behave and where they how they like to make decisions. And then the third one, all since I mentioned three, maybe you are you're retired. One spouse is sixty seven. The other is sixty six. The sixty six year old has started claiming social security. The sixty seven year old were waiting until you are 70 to claim, but you need that income. And so you have, we call it the bridge portfolio. And this is a pot of money that's designed to give you exactly what that defined benefit plan will give you until it does. And then at the time that all of those checks are coming in from those other sources, that fund has has run itself out of money by design. Interesting. And so, so I can see why you end up with literally like three different portfolios with three different reports because they, they just have substantially different time horizons. Like your your bridge portfolio is a classic, you know, asset liability matched, you know, defined payments portfolio of generally a short term. Your discretionary pots, it sounds like are at least generally call them intermediate term, right? They may run eight to ten years. You know, here's your extra travel budget while you're in your sixties. Right. They are usually more conservatively invested than their core sustainable lifetime portfolio. Right. Because that's the ultra long-term one. So we can hang out with that for a long time. Yep. That's right. And we do that because we're all that because we're lazy. Yeah. Clearly that's why you would have like, I mean, do you literally have three investment policy statements for some clients that have these three different portfolios? Yes. So how does that get managed just from the practical perspective? Like how do you keep track of these things? What software tools do you use to keep track of all of this and manage it? Well, so we run model portfolios. And if you imagine, you know, um, you know, a bunch of models where your most aggressive one is, you know, it could be 100% equities and your least aggressive one is 10% equities. 
and maybe you have 15% increments, you know, so you have 100% equity and then 85 and then 70 and then, you know, or however you want to do it. You know, you, you have a manageable number of models and every single one of those portfolios is one of those models. And what are you using to make all these different performance reports for each of the buckets and each of the groups under one household? Like that just still sounds administratively complex to me. Well, you, I mean, we use Orion, but there's obviously, you know, you know more than I do about who the other providers are that out, that are out there. And, you know, every one of those model portfolios, you know, can be rebalanced. And, you know, obviously we have to provide cash for the withdrawal amounts and such that are done. We're trying to become more, even more efficient with that. But if you don't do this stuff, and you just like slosh the whole thing in together and somebody's not drawing social security yet. So you're, you're drawing more out and then they have their regular withdrawals and then they're taking their, you know, their extra money out. And you say, well, you, you know, you're 67 and 60, you're, yeah, you're 67 and 66 and you have $2 million. And last year you drew out $150,000 or should we be worried? What you basically have to do is then deconstruct the $2 million into its component parts. Right. I'll say, no, no, you're okay because this portion of the spending is actually just temporary because it's bridging until your social security starts. And then then your spending can drop way down. So we may draw a couple hundred thousand dollars over the next few years. But once we get there, you know, you'll still have one and a half million left. And here's your stable spending from that point forward, which means you literally just deconstructing the portfolio into the component parts. And then we said, yes, so you're okay. And then next year they come back and it's a little different number and they go, are we still okay? And we go, well, let's deconstruct it again. It's like, God, I don't want to do that. So why don't we just deconstruct it one time? And the, the beauty is the of the non-permanent or the discretionary portfolio is we tell clients that's all there is. You know, there's that song, is that all there is? Well, that's all there is. And so you get to decide when it's worth it. You, because people who do a good job saving for retirement have some degree of discipline usually and are rule followers. You know, you should save money. You know, they followed that rule. They did it. They succeeded. And nobody wants to do anything that most people do not want to do anything that's harmful. I believe that people that run out of money by and large choose to. Because it enables them to defer something else in their life or avoid something else in their life that is even more painful. Most of us, thank goodness, you know, we have painful things that have been in our lives at various points in time, but they aren't, they don't rise to the level of that pain, at least on an ongoing basis. And so people like that, it's like, well, here's, here's your core portfolio and thou shalt not spend more than this. Because if thou does, then we can no longer say that we have the same level of confidence that you'll be okay. A number of years ago, Mike Branham came up with this idea. He called it green light, yellow light, red light. I don't like the traffic signal. It's like, well, you know what? You no longer have a green light. You now have a yellow light. It's the amber light. Why is that? Well, because you know you violated this spending rule, and so you're probably okay. But we can't say it with, and people don't like that. 
And so we can say, thou shalt not take more out of the core than the spending rules say. And if you, if thou needst more money, thou takes it from the discretionary pot. And the, and here's the dirty little secret. People say, well, if I run my discretionary portfolio out of money, can I replenish it? And the obvious answer is, I don't know. Because I don't know whether the conditions are such that that safe spending policy number, which you know is really designed to make you be okay if you get dealt a really unfortunate hand of cards in terms of returns and inflation and all that other stuff, if that's what ends up happening, then no, you can't replenish it. But in 10 years, we might be able to recalibrate the whole thing and go, oh my gosh, you have $125,000 over here in this core that you don't really even need. And yes, we can replenish your discretionary portfolio, but we didn't know that eight to 10 years ago because we didn't know what was going to happen. And so how do the dollars get set to these? I mean, I get the bridge portfolio. That's going to be a simple math problem. You, you need X dollars for Y years until Social Security starts. But the, the split between core and discretionary, does this come back to like, this is why we do all this budget breakdown to understand what their core versus discretionary expenses are? Because then we can get down to like, okay, you're your core spending is $7,000 a month. And so that's $84,000 a year. And if you want $84,000 a year at a 5% withdrawal rate, like we got to put whatever that is, $1.6 million into a into the core portfolio. And then everything you've got left goes in the discretionary bucket because that's what you've got left. Like, is it is it that sort of structure? Yep. And except the 7,000 in your example was 7,000 that was not being provided by defined benefit sources. Okay. So you'll take core back out pension, social security, et cetera, get down to what's left. And then that's the, that's the number. That's it. That's exactly it. And, and sometimes people have so much indiscretionary that, you know, the question comes up, well, what about long-term care insurance? Do we need that or do we still need that? Because we bought this back when we were in our in our mid-50s. That seemed good, but things have actually been better than we thought. We worked longer. We got an inheritance, whatever, and our discretionary pot is $800,000. We go, well, what you could do is break that down further and create a long-term care portfolio to just have a – say, don't don't – this is what that's to be used for. And you just see it there. Uh, and you know that, oh, okay, yes, we can self-insure. This is the amount that our policy would have provided. We don't think we need that money. And we literally have clients, you know, a lot of people in their early, you know, retirees bring all of their habits of managing money and cash flow for, that they've accumulated over all these years. And a lot of people like to categorize their savings and spending. You know, it's literally the, the system where you have an envelope that you drop money in for for lots of different categories. You know, we hear about that and lots of people do some version of that. And whether they're, you know, different online savings accounts or different, you know, sub accounts at their bank or whatever, they have lots of different quote unquote envelopes. And some people, you know, it's like if that's what makes sense for someone, how they organize their life so that they get that level of security and peace of mind that they want, then we want to help create that for them. 
that's just another example of that letting the theory match up the behavioral aspects of clients, because at the end of the day, they have to believe that this is working for them um, and that they can understand it in a way that gives them the, the peace of mind that they want. So can you now also talk to us about exactly what's going on in that core portfolio? I know you 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 mentioned dynamic withdrawal policies from your article, and, and we'll put it in the show notes. This is episode 109. So for those who are listening, if you go to kitsis.com slash 109, we'll have some of the research that John's published in the in the show notes section. But John, can you give us a little bit of a walkthrough of just what that what these dynamic withdrawal policies in the core portfolio look like since it sounds like that's kind of the the anchor of the whole thing because that's literally where the client's bulk of the client's spending comes from. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you know, to go back to your example, if seven thousand dollars a month on a pre-tax basis was what, you know, was needed to to fund the rest of those core expenses, we figured out that you know that works out to be at a you know about a million six there you are and so most of the time that money comes out monthly you know there's also the tax planning element so we try to put as much we like to let the the bridge be as much as possible after tax money which leaves more room for Roth conversions and we'll use non-qualified money for the core so uh, you know at least until they're 70 so we're we're looking at that aspect of it too but then it's literally just the 7000 a month comes out minus any tax withholding that we want to do most clients like to have their taxes withheld so we'll probably do you know at least two tax projections a year for each client to be able to answer these things every people talk about you know how much money do you have in in cash how many years worth or whatever i think that's silly I frankly don't see any difference between having a bunch of money in the money market and having, you know, as long as some of your fixed income is allocated to a high quality bond holding with around a, a duration of one, uh, I, I think, you know, there's no difference. And so it's an interesting framing, like you, you have this fairly rigorously constructed bucket approach, but not the bucket that most people have with the bucket approach, which is the the short-term cash bucket for you know one, two, three years worth of spending. Right. And there's now research that was published last year, which says that if you take the way that bucket approach is usually implemented, it really leads to a lot less wealth at the end versus just a, a, a simple balanced portfolio that's rebalanced every year. Yeah, we've we've covered this on the on the blog a few times as well. Like from a you know, it sounds great in theory, but from a practical perspective, when people are spending 4 or 5% a year, if you hold three years of spending in cash, you have a 15% cash allocation. And if you hold 15% in cash for life, you just end out with less money because that's a lot of cash to hold for life for a multi-decade Well, it is, and it, and it really hurts if, if, it's, if it's only the remaining 85%. That you allocate 60, 40. And furthermore, you know, the way most likely that portfolio is got somewhere in the neighborhood of a 2% overall yield between the interest that the bonds are paying and the dividends that the stocks are throwing off. So you've got 2% in, you know, coming in every year. So three years for 5% does not require 15%. It only requires nine. 
if you, even if that's what you wanted to do. But anyway, to get back, so, you know, we will raise cash every three months, to, every three to six months for that. We'll rebalance portfolios every three to six months. You know, we have tolerance levels for, you know, if a, if a, a sub-asset class like large, U.S. large value or, or emerging markets gets enough out of whack, then, you know, we do that. One, something that we've not yet done is go to a rebalance, a, a you know, a, I guess I'll call it a fully automated rebalancing software where it's, you know, the trades are proposed by the machine. But I think that's coming for Cornerstone in the next couple of years. So that's it. You know, it, it people, the, the thing I'll say is people say, oh, these, these policies, these rules sound really complicated. And I just say, well, compared to what? Right. The, I, I, I just, have a meeting with clients every year and we figure out where the next year's money is coming from. Like that's feels nice and flexible, but it's actually much more mentally straining than, Oh, we just follow a rule and this is what we do. Well, even the question of, should I change how much I'm taking out or not? You, you, you know, you have to, all of these are questions that you have to answer even, and, and by ignoring them, you're simply saying, I'm going to keep doing the same thing, even if I'm not aware of its impact. So it's, it's not that hard and it's not really much different than what people are are doing anyway it's just way more systematic you know in 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 their in their paper on financial planning policies yeski and bui define a policy as something where you know it's 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 general enough so as to apply in virtually all circumstances and i would amend that to say it's it's general enough so that it it actually does apply in the circumstances when you care the most, like the world is falling apart, but it's specific enough so that you are rarely in doubt as to what to do. So can you talk a little bit more about how these decision rules work on an ongoing basis with clients? Yeah, I mean, there's really only a few things that there are only a few things that can change from year to year in what you take out. You can either take out the exact same amount, you can take out the same amount plus inflation, you can take out plus more than inflation, or you can take out actually less in nominal terms. And so, you know, the decision rules really get to that where if you had a year where your return was negative, you freeze. You just don't take the same you take the same amount out as you did last year. If your withdrawal rate you know, most, you know, if your withdrawal rate goes up by more than 20%, then you reduce what you're taking out by 10% on a real basis. So it's 20% of my, of my original rate. So like if I started at five, 20% of five is one. So if my withdrawal rate goes from five to six, I've got to take a cut. That's right. And if you, you know, if you really look at the original research and look at those numbers, it, you know, you, I wouldn't, if anybody got up to around six and a quarter or whatever, you know, because markets fell, you know, that would trigger the reduction. And one of the things, it doesn't matter so much when inflation is really low, you know, like almost non-existent, but the reduction is 10% off of what the next year's withdrawal would have been had you gotten an increase for inflation. So it's a 10% real reduction rather than a 10% nominal reduction, which the real reduction is actually a, a smaller decrease in dollar terms. And so, so you've essentially got this like giant matrix of 
all the clients and what their spending was for the past year and what their portfolio was for the past year. So you can keep recalculating these withdrawal rates to see if they're still within the bands. Yeah. I mean, every client comes in about, you know, most of our clients come in every six months. So what we'll do is we'll say, oh, okay, well, what are you, what is, what's your withdrawal from the core portfolio? If we take that on an, if we annualize that based on where you are right now and, you know, yesterday's portfolio value, what was that withdrawal rate? If it hasn't gone up by more than, you know, if it hasn't hit that 20% trigger, there's nothing we need to do. You and I were talking before the podcast started, but you know, if there's a year, you know, a year where returns were positive, the model says that you get a raise for inflation. Well, most clients don't come in and ask for it, and we ought, we usually don't say, "Hey, you know, you're, you know, would you like your raise for inflation?" So, for the most part, over time, those those withdrawal amounts often don't increase very very many times. Which ironically is right in line with what David Blanchett found in his article on spending patterns, that retiree spending does go up, but it does not go up by as much as inflation. And, you know, if you, and, and I wrote a piece in the Journal of Financial Planning a couple of years ago where I said, well, what if, what if your core spending is basically 50% from Social Security and 50% from your portfolio? So you have 50% that is going to get a CPI adjustment every year, come hell or high water, because we can print money. So there's no problem. And then you look at, at Blan- what Blanchett found in terms of, of his rates of spending increase, and you say, oh, if, if it's not actually going up quite as much as inflation, and you have half that is going up with inflation, how much does the other half actually have to keep going up in order to fill in the gap? And the answer is it hardly needs to move at all. It's almost exactly flat on a nominal basis over the whole 25 years. I was surprised at that, and that's a big deal. But it matches what our clients are telling us because they're coming in and they're not saying, oh, my gosh, you know, everything costs more because, I mean, everything does, but they're just not spending as much. And and what's the anchor initial withdrawal rate that you use to build around all this in the first place? Like if you're monitoring that they go – plus or minus 20% from their original withdrawal rate, like w- what is the anchor rate that you typically set? Will you, as long as a client is comfortable with a portfolio that is somewhere between 60 to 65% in equities, which most of them are, as opposed to something that's a little more, has less money in equities, so it's a little more conservative. So as long as, as they're there, we're comfortable at um, 5.2%. Which is a number that's right in line with with the with the paper, because valuations have been so high in recent years, we've we've started everybody there, which gives them a lot of you know you know it gives them a fair fairly large amount of space before you know they would trigger a reduction. There, in other words, it's not. But right now, those withdrawal rates are now up to you know somewhere around five point six, simply because of the of the market drop. And and so how do you reconcile like there's all this discussion out there around, you know, classic 4% rule and at least a few folks that have said no no valuations are high, we have to take a lower number, it's 3 or 3.5. Like how do you explain 5 or 5.2? Yeah, sure. Well, the first thing is that we talk about the 4% rule, but as you know, you don't need me to you know this very well. Bengen's original number was 4.1. 
And then Bill said, well, wait a minute, we don't have all the equities in the S&P 500. We have some diversity, even back in the, in the early 90s when Bill was writing this. So he said, well, what if I add a little dollop of small cap stocks to this and redo it? Well, he got 4.6. So Bengen's rule is really the 4.5% or the 4.6% rule. It's not the 4% rule. So that gets you part of the way there. The other thing is that, and, and the analogy that we use, we use a lot of analogies. We were talking about how we you know, talk to clients. We say now, imagine, you know, if you think about the withdrawals that you take over a lifetime in retirement, think about that as like a financial road trip. You are going to drive for a long time. You hope it's a long time. You hope it's a great trip, but you are going to encounter a lot. Uh, the first thing is, you know, I, I say to you, if you're going to be driving down down that you know down the road, so to speak, the um, your withdrawal rate is analogous to your speed. So the higher the withdrawal rate, the faster you're going. And if I were to say to you now, in your car, you have no brakes and no mirrors. How fast will you drive? And the answer is slower. Then that may seem like a ridiculous question, but the four percent rule, uh, uh, you know, Bengen's rule, the you get an inflation-adjusted increase every year, is analogous to having no brakes and no mirrors, because you never do anything other than increase by the rate of inflation. So you're not slowing down. And if you're not slowing down, you don't need brakes. And secondly, you do that each and every year, regardless of the conditions around you. So you don't need to know what the conditions are around you. Thus, you need no mirrors. So what we say is, but actually, we know that if you do have brakes, you can tap the brake, take, you know, with, you know, back off your withdrawals a little bit. And you also have mirrors so that you can take into account the conditions. And this is where, Michael, we bring in the work that you did back in 2000. You can tell me whether it was eight or nine that it first came out on dynamic asset allocation adjustments and how that affects safe withdrawals, which I consider to be the, the most recent innovation in this category. Nothing since, I don't think, really shifts, moves the needle. So we use that in our practice. So we just say, because you have this flexibility, you can go faster. And that's, and that's how we explain it. Would, would, you, would you drive your car faster with brakes and mirrors to make adjustments than without? Well, yes, then great. Would you take a higher withdrawal rate when you have the ability to make adjustments and apply the brakes? Yes. But the other piece is there's no free lunch here. If someone says, don't ever tell me that I need to you know, not have a raise for inflation or don't ever tell me that I need to take a little bit less, it's like, oh, okay, well, then that withdrawal rate doesn't work. Then we're going to dial that number back down. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, seriously, there is no free lunch. So, so how has this worked out as we've gone through this recent bout of market volatility? Well, it's almost been a non-event, but in the sense that if because of because withdrawal because markets got so high, withdrawal rates got lower. They got down, you know, close to five percent, four point eight, four point nine. And so if you do the math, if the portfolio value declines by 10%, then the withdrawal rate increases by 10%. 
So, you know, someone whose withdrawal rate was four was five is now 5.5 and that's higher. You know, it's definitely within the range of what's okay. And so um, that's the point, right? They're still within the bands. They're still within the safety zone. That's the whole point of drawing them with 20% parameters. Like you can ignore it, it, it to me, like it, it essentially tells you this is, you know, things between the bar bands are noise, are noise. Things that move you across the bands are signals that require adjustments. So here's where the threshold is. And as long as you don't cross this line, you really don't have to worry about it or call me. Well, right. And, you know, the, the, sometimes the term guardrails has come up and it actually applies really well to that driving the car analogy because you're driving down the road and and you just it's beautiful scenery, hopefully. And hopefully it's a really nice day. You don't get a storm. You don't have ice or snow or limited visibility. I mean, this analogy is a rich analogy, but you know that along one side of the road is you don't want to go off that side of the road. You know, where we are, and you have a guardrail there, of course. Where we are right now is instead of driving really close to the safe side of the road, you're actually kind of back in the middle of the lane. You're closer to that guardrail than you were before. You're not in danger of hitting it, but you are closer than you were before. And aren't you glad it's there? So, anything that surprised you about, I know, gaps between theory and practice, like how it's gone with clients versus how you expected from doing the research and, and, and the theory work? You know, I'm sure I'll think after we, you know, finish this, I'm sure I'll think of, you know, what I would really want to say. But I think the biggest thing is continuing to, and I think this will, by the way, keep evolving. You know, different generations look at the same questions and, and while they don't come up with hugely different answers, there are different way, different ways that, that people will look at things. And so continuing to take the theory that, you know, um, that someone is kind of anchoring their advice to and say, but how can we do this in a way that feels natural to clients? You know, for us, I think the biggest, frankly, the more important innovation was the, this discretionary or non-permanent portfolio, which allows clients to know exactly how much extra spending they can do without you know having that that traffic light start to blink yellow or or know what they can do cuz people want to know that they want to walk right up to the line and they don't want to go over it that's worked really well i don't know whether that construct exactly will be the most helpful to clients 20 years from now i suspect the principle will be the same we'll probably be looking at longer periods needing to have sustainability or we'll be looking at gaps in the drawing of things. You know, we'll, if you think about people who interrupt their careers and such, you know, you, you have different dedicated pots of money that have different roles in that. So I guess that's the biggest thing is that, you know, having, whether it's portfolios or withdrawal schemes or ways of tracking things really fit the purposes of that money. No different than when clients are younger and you, you know, gosh, you do want to invest the education fund differently than the retirement fund because they're just different characteristics of it. But by and large, it's been, it's been really cool cool to see that it resonates these approaches resonate with clients it kind of sounds to them like common sense and again that's that tailwind you were talking about earlier on in the broadcast so so what comes next for you and cornerstone 
Well, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, the, the tax law change was a big next. I mean, just really rethinking how we do a lot of things. You know, we've got some um, really exciting transition planning underway. Transition planning meaning you just you just for you eventually to yeah yeah to retire or wind exactly down. right. And so that's all I'm going to say at this point. Fair, fair enough. Yeah, underway. We'll we'll have you back in a few years to talk about how it went. Right, right. You know, continuing to to fine tune the the residency program. No, I, um, I I don't think there's anything that's a next that that is that isn't on many of your listeners, you know, people that care enough about their clients and their their businesses and their and their careers to be listening uh, this far in. <laughs> I don't think there's anything unique to Cornerstone. I guess I'll just say that you know it, it's funny in our in our in our field. I, I don't think of us as an industry. I think of us as a profession, and I think we should be careful about you know what we want, how we want to be perceived. But you get you know our field asks a lot of practitioners, and then it doesn't ask anything more than thirty hours every two years of CE. Anything beyond that is based on curiosity and motivation. So. It's just, it's, you know, I want to continue to develop those parts of myself that maybe aren't as easily, you know, if you think about right brain, left brain, if you're a, if you, if you're a little more comfortable on the, on one side of this, of the hemispheres than the other is to do this, do stuff that, that exercises the other because financial planning done well is a multidisciplinary art and science. And so, you know, if you don't have those multiple dimensions that are well-developed, you just can't do as good a job for clients, for your business. And it's not as much fun either. So looking back, I, I'm curious from the other end, what was the low point for you? Ah, well, in 19, I want to say 91, I qualified for the earned income credit. And the, that was a the low income earned income credit. Right. Made made money and made so little that I received a refundable tax credit. The practice that is now Cornerstone, which really began in 1990 for me, it's hard. That stuff is hard and happened to begin in the middle of a recession or as a recession was beginning. So that taught me early on that market timing was not my forte. And so that was, that was the low point when you are just like, you know, where is the next client going to, going to come from? And though, and we do things differently, obviously today, and how we can reach people. And in some ways, it's easier, and in some ways, it's harder. You know, it is a striking thing for you know looking at this practice with two hundred and forty million dollars and multiple advisors and successful clients, and kind of remember like it sort of sucks for almost everybody in that first year or few, right, right down to qualifying for the earned income tax credit while you're trying to launch your financial advisor business. Right. That's a battle scar. And, but it's also a nice, it's, it's a touchstone that I appreciate, even though I didn't really appreciate it then having uh, two young kids are very, even younger than young kids, a lot younger than your kids are now, Michael. So yeah. And, and, but I think that you having, uh, having a, a, a fire within you for what you see yourself doing and the way you want to make a difference 
difference in the world. I don't think anyone, everyone experiences their own version of that, I, I think. Even if it's within a firm where there's all kinds of clients and you're supporting them and, and you're growing up in that, you still have challenges to yourself and, and low points in your own development. And, and they're just different. But hanging on to that vision and, and, un, and remembering why it is that you chose this really does make a difference in those times, even though you don't think it does. And out of curiosity, I mean, how long did it take before you got to a livable wage status? Yeah, I think I was thinking back to that. And I think that the first year, you know, so that was, I started when I, I grew up in Maryland. So, and I started with what is now Ameriprise back then, IDS Financial Services. I was lucky in that I drank, I was, I was offered the financial planning Kool-Aid and I drank it when I was 25 years old. And so I really did only ever learn the financial planning process, if you will, as a way of working with clients based on their needs and goals rather than in, put that first. And, you know, we didn't really talk about it. It's, it wasn't maybe quite a fiduciary mindset uh, in, in, the, in, in, in the letter, but it, 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 you know, I took it that way in the spirit. So I was lucky in that regard. Moved to the Twin Cities shortly after that to teach at their training center. So I that my first practice went away. And the second one, the one that is today, began in 1990. And that, of course, is when the, the difficulties were. And I think it took to 1995 was the first year. I think that was the year that I started. And I go, oh my gosh, I've, I'm now, you know, I had made the decision to do this assets under management thing starting even before there was Schwab's one source program. This was just after the technological res revolution when you had a computer at your desk versus not entering 1995 thinking, oh my gosh. There's $5 million under management, and that works out to about $50,000 if everybody sticks around. It's like, okay, it's, so it really did take until then. It's a striking thing to me, just, you know, almost five years to get the first $5 million, and then over the sex subsequent 15 years, it goes from five to 240. Right, right. And it's like, you know, but it's no different than any client. It's like how long it takes a long time to amass your first $100,000. And then the next hundred's a heck of a lot easier and they get quicker after that. That doesn't mean you stop doing the same things. That's that power of compounding that Einstein was so impressed with. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the things we always observe is that even just that, that word success means different things to different people. And so as someone who's built what most would objectively call certainly a successful business, how do you define success for yourself? Wow. I don't often think about it in those terms. I don't know that I would have done a whole lot differently. I think I could have had a very different result numerically and probably not done anything differently. But I do believe that 
if you are continuing to be curious, if you are continuing to not be satisfied in the way you are doing things, if you are, you know, you find yourself late at night instead of reading something that might be pleasurable that you're saying, well, what if we adjusted our fee schedule to this? Or what if we did that from a marketing or a messaging perspective? Or what if this part, this was rewritten on the website? Or what if, you know, what if, what if, what if? I think that really, cumulatively, that makes a really big difference. And so if I guess if I had to, you know, define what it looks like or, or attribute it to anything, it, it's, it's kind of stuff like that. And truly believing that if you can perform at that level and treat people the way you would want to be treated, that it really is going to work out fine. I love that message of, you know, just being continuously curious and then treating people the way you would want to be treated. It's going to work out fine. It's simple, but it's not easy. Well, thank you for joining us and sharing your your story on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, John. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, asking. Look forward to seeing you again, hopefully soon when there's not wires involved. Yes, indeed. We'll cross paths sometime soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.